Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. Jacob has now set up an, a, a matzeva. Um, and the idea, by the way, what's going on here is he calls the stone Beit Elohim. Notice it's not Beit El, it's interesting. He named the place Beit El already because that's where he had to dream. <clears throat> That's the whole point at the beginning of this little story. Yes, God appeared to me here. Okay, so this is going to be God's house, this area. And yes, it's a place where there will be a, little, a, a temple, right? Bethel is going to be one of the two places where, where Jeroboam builds his temples. That's the one in the south, and there's the other one up north in Don. But when he says Beit Elohim, the idea is, that the divine essence enters the stone and is within the stone, okay? Not in space, but within the physicality of the stone. And it's based on the premise that the divine essence can enter physical things. I mean, literally take over the substance of the object. Now, this has to be differentiated. There's a difference between this and what happens inside the Mishkan, right? Inside the Mishkan, the divine presence does not enter into anything physical. The essence is not absorbed into parts in something that is part of this world. The divine presence resides there. And that's the whole point of the, of the Kruvim, right? The cherubs with their outstretched wings that's the throne of God. The same way that those, they represent the chariot of God in Ezekiel's vision, in chapter one of Ezekiel, Yechezkel. Okay? So there's a basic difference here. Basic difference. Because God has no physicality and does not enter into physicality. Okay? Totally aphysical. So he can be present. Okay, his body, if you will, is a non-physical body. He's present. He's filling space at a certain time. So yeah, does God have a body? Yes, but not a not a body that we understand. And often it's associated with light. But of course, the point is you can't look at it. Because if you do, you're going to die. It's going to overwhelm you. So it's not the light that you can look, it's not like the sun. You can look at the sun or the moon, which were sources of light. That you could do. But this is a source of light that is a non-physical light. Okay, that's, that's, that seems to be how the monotheism of the Bible and, and the understanding of God's presence emerged. But when you do Matseva, when you do an Asherah, be it a tree, or a wooden pole, a physical item, then you are putting God within a physical thing. God's essence has been absorbed into the physicality of these things. God doesn't work that way. God transcends the natural. That's the basic point. Because if you remember, the paganism of the Middle East in particular was was really very much bound up in physical expressions of nature, yes? Wind, right? Uh, water, earth, 
trees, animals. Yes? Yeah, you know, I don't have to tell you. You know all that stuff. So this is a radical move in the other direction. That's why this this passage here from Genesis chapter 28 is such a problem, if you will. But if you understand it's an ancient tradition, when a lot of this more sophisticated, non-material thinking before it emerged, you can understand it. But at least it's not dealing with the gods around, right, with the other deities. So that would be a step in the right direction. Okay, all right. Now, it's just interesting, by the way, again, talking about use of ancient pagan expressions. Go to Genesis chapter 31. Breshit Lamad Aleph. Genesis chapter 31, just to look at something very brief. Starting verse 11. And we're going to focus particularly on verse 13. So Vayomar Eli Malach, he had a, a bachalom, another dream. This is, this is after having, this is the, uh, he's on the verge, God is on the verge of telling him, leave here, go away. Right? He said, get, get away, get, a, get, get a far away as, as you can from Laban. Okay, he's a no good Nick. All right, that's my, doesn't say no good Nick. That's not a biblical term. So, so, uh, Malach Elohim said to me, an angel. Angels, again, do all kinds of things. In this instance, the Malach is a, is a PA system, a public address system for God. Okay. Uh, so this Malach says to him, Yaakov. And so he answers back, Hineni, I'm here. So now God is saying, through through the the malach, Sana inecha ure kol haatudim haolim min hatzon atudim nekudim uvrudim. Look and see all of the speckled and spotted um, uh, sheep that are in your flocks. Kiraiti et kol asher Lavan asalach, because I see everything that that Lavan did to you. So Lavan was the one right who sort of gave sheep to Yaakov to shed to herd, and they were the ones with the speckled and spotted, not the pure white ones. So, of course, you know what happens. Jacob works with this and makes himself, he uses that as the foundation for his own flocks, and you can tell the difference between his and Laban's, because Laban's are white and his are spotted and speckled. He said, spotted and speckled doesn't make any difference. They're sheep. And so he, you know, he knew how to become a, a a a breeder, a sheep breeder. He was an expert sheep breeder, is what he was. Okay, that's not our interest, though. So he says, so you see, Akira Iti, I saw everything that Lavan did to you. So now he identifies himself. Anochi ha'el beitel. I am el beitel. The the el beitel. In other words, he's identifying. This is sort of his name. And we're going to see later on how it's a standalone. Okay. El Betel. Okay. Now, what's interesting about that is the name Betel probably existed. I'm not saying probably. There's evidence that the name Betel was, had been there before. What God was worshiped there? Wouldn't it have been Malas or would it have been Baal? El. El. Oh, yeah. Sorry. God of the Pantheon. So Betel is, the house of the chief god of the pantheon. 
And ale by ale, and you'll see, for example, the the incident where the Midianite women attempt to uh, uh, seduce the Israelite men into following their God, right? It, it, it's in uh, the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 20, 23, something like 20, 20, 21, 23, think 21, okay? And so, um, no, it was later. It was later. Whatever. Toward the end of the book of Numbers. All right. So um, that comes to be known as Baal Paor. What is Baal Paor? Paor is a location. Baal is the name of the god who was worshipped at that location. Probably alludes to some form of a uh, worship site for the god Baal. So it's called Baal Paor in uh, uh, Kuntalet Ajrud in the desert, which I'll talk about later. Uh, there are writings that talk about Yudhe of Shomron, Yudhe of Teman, different locations where Yudhe was worshipped. Interesting, by the way. We'll get to that later. All right. But the point is that that use, that format is a pagan format. And so here, this God of Israel expresses himself to Jacob. This is I. I'm the guy. I'm this God from Beit El. Where you consecrated the stone, the standing stone, the Matseba. Okay? That's a very pagan statement from the God of Israel. So it's ancient. It goes back in antiquity. So it's been this, 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 mode of expression again has been repurposed for 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 monotheistic purposes but it's it walks a fine line because it makes god look and sound like the other gods okay but so later on such things really would be problematic but early on in the process that's what happened there's another example of it and uh, betel is is also mentioned uh, <clears throat> hold on. Right. So if you go to, don't, don't go, I'll just read it to you. In chapter, in Genesis 35, as he's coming to Bethel, you know, to make it into a cultic center. So in Bethel, this is 35, verse 7. It says, Vayibin Shamizbeach, Jacob made him an altar there. Vayikralamakom, El Bethel. He called the place the Ale of Bethel. He named it for God. El Bethel. Like Baal Paor, like Yudhe Vavhe Shomron, Yudhe Vavhe Teman. Got it? So it's all that same genre, that same same kind of name. But this is a pagan expression. And here it is being used for the God of Israel. So this is this is what we're saying. Okay, so this is it all fits together here. And this is our patriarch Jacob. God bless. All right. Now, then later on in that same chapter, you see another use of a matzeva, which is a witness. That's something else. It's not ever sanctified. The stone, the, you remember when he leaves Lavan, he and Lavan, Lavan, there's a pile of stones that Lavan called Yagar Sahaduta. 
and then you have the the uh, stone, right? And these are signs of the agreement that the two come to Lavan and Jacob, that they will never cross those boundaries. They will respect each other's territories. And Jacob agrees that he will not marry any other women because, you know, Lavan wanted him to take care of his daughters. And so, they, uh, you know, it's an agreement that they have and they end everybody's happy. And then Lavan goes back to Haran and then Jacob comes into Canaan eventually to confront Esav. Okay. All right. There's no, when you, when you do something like that, however, there's no consecration of the stone because it is not the, the, uh, the deity is not being in, is not being, uh, brought into the stone. It's not a worshipful something you would worship. It's just a marker, just a marker. Okay. So then we go in chapter 35, as I mentioned. We have here the the um, the, the consecration um, of uh, Beit El, but here's something interesting. As the lead up to that, now here I do want you to go to Genesis chapter 35, and we're going to read verses one through four. Genesis 35, one through four. So Elohim says to Yaakov, Kum alei Beit El, go up to Beit El, Vishev Sham, and dwell there. Vasei Sham Mizbeach, make an altar. La'el hanerai lecha bevarachacha mipnei Esav achicha. To the God who appeared to you when you ran away from Esav. Okay, harking back to chapter 28. Vayoma Yaakov el Beito, he says to his household, They'll call a sherry mo, has everybody all that's with him. Hasiru et Elohanechar, Sherbetokhem. Take out, get rid of all of the idols of the strange gods that are in your midst. The Hitaharu and purify yourselves. And change your clothes. We are going now to go up to Betel. Okay, so they had to purify themselves of any signs of idolatry because they're going to the place that is named for God. Okay, Asher im Shechem, which is by Shechem, which is near the town of Shechem, Shechem. Vayisau vayichitat Elohim, etc., etc. That's not relevant. Verse six. Oh no, 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 no. Sorry. Oh, jeez. Whoops. Verse four. That's the most important line. Verse four. By Nuel Yaakov, and they gave all of the goodies, all of the idolatrous stuff to Jacob at Kolal Hanechar Shevi Adam. Right? They gave Jacob all of these things. and their rings in that there were in their ears. What does Jacob do? Vayitmon Otam Yaakov Ashir. And he hid them under the terebinth tree that was situated at Shechem. What did we learn last time about the terebinth tree? Do you remember? Remember the pictures of the trees? That it flowered wide. Wasn't that the one you showed us that had the 
incredible crown? Yeah, well, all three of these different varieties did, yes. And they, but what, what, what was, what, what did the ancients do with, uh, with those trees? They made them into idols, right? They believed that the, particularly got the goddess of fertility, Asherah, Astarte, Ashtoreth, whatever you want to call her, that they were in those trees. Okay. So a terabith and Ela is a classic idol tree. Okay. And he, and, and that's, it was known because the, the town of Shem is there. So this is apparently, that's why Shem was seen as a sacred location because there was this giant tree. All right. So what does he, what does he do? He hides the idols under the tree. He buries them under the tree, except the word here, Vayitmon, does not, it's not Kavar. Kavar means to bury, right? Kavura, Beit Kvarot, Kever. Those are the terms we associate with a cemetery, right? He doesn't say he buried them. It says he hid them under the tree. Isn't that strange? If you were Jacob, what would you have done with these idols? Let's assume you wanted to bury them. What would you have done with them? Tybal. Well, I wouldn't have buried them. I would have destroyed them first in open sights as a symbol of yes, of I would have authority done... and hierarchy. Exactly. Exactly. And, and what Mo, what Moses did to the golden calf. In fact, he even, if you remember, he he ground it up. There was a stream, took water from the stream and had them drink the, this idol. He said, you want to, you want, well, you can take God inside of you. Here, drink the idol. You'll drink the idol, you know. All right. Anyhow. Yes. Yes. But he hid them, meaning, and, and they knew maybe, maybe he didn't tell them where he hid them. It's hard, but it's hard to keep it a secret by, by this big tree. So something is weird here. Something is very weird. You could just smash them, taken the pieces and scatter them around. End of discussion. No, he hides them. Is there some sense that they were, that there was a divine factor at work with these things and you had to show them respect when you get rid of them? Clearly he wanted them out of circulation. Okay. Maybe it means if God, I don't know, if God doesn't fulfill all the promises, all the conditions that Yaakov had set forth in his agreement, in his, in his oath, maybe it means, okay, well, take, if God doesn't fulfill all the stuff, fine, you know what, we'll, we'll take the idols and go back. You can take the idols and go back home, but I don't know. But it's very, very strange. Mark? Well, uh, I'm not a gambler, but uh, people who gamble hedge their bets all the time, yeah, even yeah. in the stock market. <laughs> <laughs> He's the original uh, hedge fund it character. Yeah, maybe it's a hedge fund. I like it. But maybe something like that. Yeah, I don't know. But it's it's totally weird. It's totally weird. Some have suggested that by putting the idols 
which Jacob has already defined as defiled and defiling under the tree, in so doing, he was actually hoping to negate the uh, pagan attractiveness of the tree, right? Think about it. If they are, if the idols represent impurity and you're burying it under the tree, ah, I'm going to put impurity at the roots of this tree so the tree will become impure and people will not worship it. That's great. Why didn't he say that? That would be a great mitzvah that he was doing. But as it sits, it's just totally challenging. Well, why didn't he uh, uh, crush the stones like his grandfather crushed the idols and then bury them under the tree? Well, that's what we just said. Hmm? No, no, Taibo mentioned that before. Take the, take the all, take, it's not stones. These are idols. Uh-huh. These were idols that the women had brought with them. Remember, Karam was, they were pagan women. They lived in a pagan culture. So they brought their idols with them. Remember, Rachel sits on her father's uh, trafin, right? They're household idols. Those are the things that they brought along. Because they took all their valuables with them. I mean, frankly, why didn't Jacob say, no, 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 don't take them? He didn't. Uh, he, he wanted slum by it. Yeah, good. Yes. All right. So anyway, so yes, he should have smashed them. Okay, Bible. Um, though, to me, the logic is a little different. If you're someone who doesn't think those idols have power, no matter how you concentrate in one place, there's still no power. But if you're someone who takes them seriously, to me, aggrandizing them in one place, the terebinth plus the idols makes it more powerful, not less. Yes, I would have thought that too, actually, right. So, I don't know. But this, again, they're playing loose, you know, with with this idolatrous stuff. His intentions are clearly good, right? Get rid of the idols, fine. But it's specifically the way he deals with them that really uh, opens the door to all kinds of speculation. Okay? But then it's interesting, soon thereafter, um, for some reason, Devorah, who was Rebecca's wet nurse, died. And they mentioned this, but they mentioned it because she was buried under an oak tree, which is another sacred tree. But he was, maybe the same thing, she's dead now, so her body is is defiling. You know, it's, it's a it's a dead body. So putting it under the tree, maybe it's going to defile the tree. Maybe. But I thought there's an interpretation since Rebecca's death is not noted that Devorah's death is actually representative of Rebecca dying. Even though we know Rebecca's in Machpelech. Yeah. At least we think we know Rebecca's in Machpelech. Yes, yes. That's right. I don't, it's very strange. Yes. Why? Yeah. I, I think it may be more the notion that this oak tree is a sacred tree and he names it the tree of, uh, Alon Bechut, the tree of crying, the crying tree. It's very strange why it's even in there. Yeah. You're right. We don't learn of the re- death of Rebecca. Not at all. We learned of the death of Sarah. We learned of the death of Rachel. Uh, right, we don't learn of the death of Leah. We do not learn of the of the death of of this of this of this Devorah. No, interesting. All right, now 
One final point with, our, with regard to our beloved Jacob. So now we're looking at Genesis 35, verses 9 to 15. Okay, let's look at nine, Genesis 35, 9. So, <clears throat> so, so this is after the wrestling, right, with, with the angel. So now he changes his name. Verse 10, God changes his name to Yisrael. And that's his name now. Now, then he says the following. Okay, etc., etc. God says to him, this is, uh, this, uh, this is probably a P tradition, okay, because God, sa- God refers to this later on in Shemot. Uh, when he's talking to Moses, he says, you have not known me by yud heh You've known me by El Shaddai. And he alludes to this. I am El Shaddai. There is that El again. This is not the God Shaddai, the God of Shaddai. This is his name, El Shaddai. So he's got the name of the great God of the pagan pantheon. Shaddai. What is Shaddai? Some people say it refers to women's bosoms. Right, which give milk and are nurturing things, possibly. But we also know <clears throat> from Ugaritic that El Shaddai would mean the god of Shadu, which is the god of the mountain. The god of, and that makes perfectly good sense. Because what is Sinai called? Har Elohim, the mountain of God. So this is, so he's Ale of the mountain. Okay. Ale of the mountain. Again, that's a, it's just a pa- pagan-sounding thing, a pagan, a pagan concept of a name like that, and referring to the mountain. Okay, all right. Now, but in verse fourteen, again, Vayatzav Yaakov Matzeva. He 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 stood up a, a matzeva, a standing stone. Vamakom Asher Diberoto, Matzevat Evan, in the place where God spoke to him, a, a stone matzeva. And he poured oil on it. I'm sorry, uh, that was no, Nesach is, is wine. And he poured oil on it. God, where he spoke to him, Betel. This is a different tradition. This is, this is how the name became Betel. It's interesting. You realize it is a different version of what we've already seen. That's a, that whole thing about bringing together traditions that seemingly are either contradictory, repetitive, unnecessary. But here's another thing. The common denominator again here is, though, that he consecrates this time with Nesach, which is Yayan, wine, and Shemin, oil. Okay, So another version Another consecration of a stone. Okay. I guess you could say at the end of all of this, Jacob was stoned, right? He didn't know what he was doing, right? He had too much, smoking too much. Okay. Bible. So, you know, the human thing that if something's not uh, out there, you don't need to think about it which is why all the things, if there weren't a lot of Asherah, 
there wouldn't be a lot of references to getting rid of them because if they weren't there, who would go on and on? And when you just said the thing about different versions and whatever, it made me wonder about the whole idea that the rabbis had that nothing in Torah, nothing in Tanakh is redundant, that if it's repeated, that there has to be a reason. And maybe that's where some of this came from because there's just so much repetition that didn't fit together smoothly. So therefore the rabbis constructed this idea, then it has different meaning at all, whatever, because then it wouldn't be contradictory on its face. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely correct. And the fact of the matter is, we know from heretical groups within Judaism or the or critics from outside of Judaism in the rabbinic period, that they knew these contradictions and they threw them back at the rabbis and and the Pharisees presumably as well, because the Pharisees did Midrash. And so did the Essenes do Midrash. And we're going, this is even before the rabbis. And so the notion was that, that they would show these contradictions. We even, there was even a Jewish heretic. I think I mentioned this once before. Around 900 CE, who raised, he, he created a list, I think, of 200 issues in the Torah or in the Bible where he saw contradictions, inconsistency, and he used that. This was a born Jew. He used that to say, how can you believe in a tradition that's based upon contradictions and inconsistencies? Okay? And Sadia Gaon answered him. He had a whole treatise dealing with this guy. Okay, this is 900 CE. It's still going on. And we know that the critics of Christianity in the pagan world, some philosophers and even a, 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 a one of the Caesars who were pagan, were from, pag, from pagans and hated, disturbed by Christianity's presence would attack Christianity via the Hebrew Bible. And we read all the same questions, noting, because they had the Septuagint, right? They could read it in the Greek. And they would use these arguments against the the rabbinic authorities. Okay, this is already now we're talking second, third, fourth centuries, CE. So this process, it was nothing new, Okay. Uh, you see that in, in Philo, in his interpretations of the Bible. He's also dealing with questions about the Jews. Remember, Egypt was a center of the Jewish anti-Semitism. There's no question about that. Josephus wrote a book based upon that, against Appian. So the po- whole point was, people knew about these inconsistencies. We understand why they're there, Okay. They're there because of this impulse. You have sacred literature. You've got different groups who you're trying to keep together. So you incorporate a lot of this stuff. It's the same reason why there are four gospel accounts in the Christian Bible. And somebody at one point, by the way, wanted to put them all together into a smooth, seriously, in the fourth century, it was third or fourth century. I forget his name right now. But he, 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 he made an edited version of all four where he smoothed everything out so that it was told one story. Because if you read the different accounts of, of the of the Gospels, you do have contradictions there too. 
But it's the same impulse. You've got different people with different perspectives. You want them to all stay within the big picture. So you 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 will live with the inconsistencies. So yes, okay, Mark. Yeah, inconsistencies uh, are inherent in human behavior, human life. I mean, that's that's the bedrock of these stories. I mean, Jacob was a totally contradictory, inconsistent character, and he sort of sort of developed over time, but he kept his character flaws. Um, um, you know, active, but it was a transition going on. Yes. Yeah. Uh, another comment I have is, does this tradition of anointing Israelite kings with oil derive from anointing, uh, idols? Yeah. It's the kings and priests also. So is there a transition point? Uh, no, is this, is this, does this have to do with deification of, of kings? Not so much because, um, it was a way of sanctifying. So yes, the Bible calls, um, Leviticus calls the priests Kedoshim. They are sacred. They have been sanctified. King, king has been sanctified. It doesn't mean that it's deification of the king. Not in not in the Hebrew tradition. It doesn't say it's, it's a consecration of uh, It's a consecration, king. right? In other words, you are a a a, a, a an upper level let let's say if we are all part of the covenanted people, right? Then people who are, are consecrated with oil, they're the executive committee. Right, they're one of the equals, but they are at a higher rank, so to speak. And you can expect more godlike actions from them. And these are the people who are supposed to set the examples for the people to follow. That's why when the Book of Kings was written, and they they just dump on all the kings, even good kings, who didn't get rid of the local shrines, they allowed them with all of their quasi-idolatrous activity to flourish, to continue to exist, it says so. He was a good king, but he didn't get rid of the Bamot. A Bama in the in biblical Hebrew is an uh, a an unauthorized sacred location. Okay, and so they're criticized for that. But the point is, you don't really find the worship of humans within the biblical tradition, and in fact. Egypt was the the hotbed of that. The Mesopotamian cultures did not have a lot of that, interestingly. And with the Egyptians even, as I understand that, I'm not an Egyptologist, but I've read about this a little bit. They these The pharaohs actually became deified, not while they were alive, but upon death. Upon death, then they became deified. Now, the Romans deified their, you know, starting with Augustus, they deified them as living gods. The Romans did. The Greeks, not so much. Okay. All right. Uh, Bert. I was going to say that I think uh, if there were not contradictions, if the Torah were very straightforward, we wouldn't still be talking about it thousands of years later. And that that leads to the idea that, that I heard Rabbi Feinstein put forth, and that is that Torah really is not just the text, but it's the interaction with the Jewish people with the text. 
and that uh, in some way the text that makes the text very human, and that we are that we are all part of Torah. Uh, I think Mordecai Kaplan put it well when he said the challenge is to take the Torah seriously without taking it literally. Yes. So yeah. we we live with that, but not more more as they're challenges and they involve us rather than logically they don't make sense. Yes, I think that's part of it. But I think as as I, I guess uh, Mark mentioned earlier, you know, human beings by definition are complex, and the, and by the, the the fact that all these different perspectives are there, I mean, I often tell, I often when I teach Genesis one and two, you may have heard me say this, I don't know. That why are they both there? Because they're there. I mean, I can speak personally, right? There are times when I want the God of Genesis one, all powerful, everything's great. The world is a is a fine running machine. I have faith in this God and the world that God created. Then I look at Genesis two and three, which is the second creation story, and again everything gets fouled up, and human beings screw it up. And God is trying to be this loving, caring deity who, you know, is worried about their being naked and this and that. He has to kick him out of the garden. So God's got this big headache, right? Chapter one, there's no, there's no headache from the people. Chapters two and three, you begin to see in the whole Bible thereafter is God's headache with, with human beings. Most of the time with his chosen people, us, right? So the point is, why are they all there? Because there are times God of chapter two in particular is a warm, fuzzy God. He cares. The guy's alone. It's not good that he was alone. No, no, no. I'm going to make sure he's got and he has this woman. And oh, now they're all happy. Look what I look at. God was loving and caring. What a wonderful. That's the God I want to, to hug me. Right. When I'm in need of a hug. When I'm in need of seeing grandeur and perfection and wonderful things. I'll read Genesis one. And I, I'm on, uh, people are on pendulums. We, everybody in this group is, has been on a, an emotional and an ideal and, and a theological pendulum in our lives. I guarantee it if you think about it. And so by having that all in there, this is sort of picking up on, on what you said, Bert, what, what Eddie said, the Feinstein said. Yeah. It's a re, it's, it's, it's a, it speaks to the human soul. Right. That's what we see. We see that in the Psalms class. Right. Where that there, it's really reflected because these guys let out all kinds of emotions, as we've seen. Right. So, yes, it lays it all out because we need it. We struggle. And yes, we have to struggle with the meaning of the contradictions. But in the end, it tells us we are walking contradictions. Human beings are walking contradictions. I have never met a human being. I mean, almost Funkenstein. Let me just go back to my beloved teacher, okay, with whom I did my doctor. We became very close friends, okay? I would yell at him all the time, stop smoking, you're going to die. I was right. He died of lung cancer at age 59. Huge loss. The guy was an amazing mind, okay? Everybody just was awed by his intellect. Right in his ideas to come up, his no, his capacity to come up with these creative understandings of things, amazing. Okay, this, but it was totally irrational. His addiction was beyond his capacity to deal with it. He said so. I've tried this. I've tried that. 
nothing works. Okay. So he was a complex contradiction. He was creating brilliance and self-destruction simultaneously. Explain that. Human nature. So uh, that's that's the beauty of it. That's why I love reading the Bible. I literally do because it you know it exposes us to so many different perspectives, and we see that right here. You know, they see that right here. Tybalt. So now I have two questions. One, the easy one. Please say the name of your thesis advisor again. Somehow I didn't catch it. Amos, like the prophet, Funkenstein. With F- an F, was in Frank or? Frank. Yeah, yeah. Funkenstein is is similar to Finkelstein. Funken means. And where what? Where was he? Was he at JTS or did you do your? Oh, no, UCLA. <laughs> He was at um, UCLA and then moved to Stanford in the Jewish studies. Got no, no. it. Okay. Was, okay. Wait, and, sorry, one second, one second. Correction, Mark, Stanford was for one year. One year only? Then yeah. he came back? Or maybe two years because they found out he was teaching full-time at three universities. <laughs> when, 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 I cons- <laughs> when I consulted with him on my senior honors thesis at Stanford, yeah. He he'd pick up the phone each time he spoke in a different language, eight times. Yes, of course. Right. He knows different languages. But the point is he was teaching full time faculty simultaneously at Tel Aviv, UCLA and Stanford. And finally they yelled at him and says, You can't do it. Sorry. So Stanford said no more. So he continued to teach full time at UCLA and Stanford. Then he became elevated in the university system to what's called a, a what was it called? A, a university scholar. professor? A, re- a university a re- professor, that's right. He uh, was a full-time tenured professor at all campuses of the UC system. He'd go wherever he wanted. He fell in love with a, a nice Jewish girl in Berkeley. He moved up there and st- ended his career at Berkeley. All right. Amazing yeah. mind. One of the most amazing minds I've ever encountered. Yes. Bible. So what I was going to ask, because when you said the word Bahama, ba- I probably just said that in my head, I heard, oh, that means high places. But then yes, you said it yes. was unauthorized yes. sacred. So it's connotative versus denotative meanings. Denotative is high places. Connotative is unauthorized sacred. Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. And they were generally high places, hills, you know, um, Think about the temple. I mean, well, the truth is the Jerusalem temple was not built on the highest hill in the area. But that's why Herod had to build it up, right? The Kotel, you know, is a a restraining wall of a bunch of dirt that he had brought into Jerusalem to elevate the temple higher than the first temple was. So it would gloriously sit up there because the, 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 the palace that the that the Hasmoneans had built right next to it was higher up than the temple was. So he tore down the... Actually, technically speaking, the temple that was destroyed by the Romans was the third temple. Because remember, when they came back from Babel, they had a very humble temple. The Maccabees upgraded it a little bit, but then essentially Herod knocked it out and replaced it with his glorious, which it was. I mean, even the rabbis in the Talmud have to admit, if you haven't seen Herod's temple, you haven't seen a beautiful structure. 
I mean, they were even, when they heard about it, right? Well, go look at the model in Jerusalem. You know, everybody's seen it. It's an amazing building. It's true. It was. That's what he built. It was a glorious temple. But he had to elevate it because he wanted to make it into a, if you will, a bama, an elevated structure above other things. Yes. So it's a high place, but it also has this connotation of being an unauthorized from the perspective of the Deuteronomic monotheists, mind you. Keep that in mind. Because up until Deuteronomy, well, actually, Hiskiao, Hezekiah, was the first one who, was, who attempted it, but he couldn't, he couldn't pull it off. Josiah did a better job, he, he, but he did not eradicate idolatry. But Josiah closed all of those local shrines, okay? And which leads me to the following map. What time is it? All right, still got time. All right, see this map? All right, you see it? You see all those lines and names and so, so forth? Okay. These are all the places in Eretz Yisrael where they have found archaeological these are Bamot. There are 12 of them. And they they go for their local temples or local shrines. And the difference is a temple actually has a structure with the designated elements similar to what was in Jerusalem, also as described in the Mishkan and the tabernacle in the Torah, which is an outer courtyard with an altar, an inner, an inner, uh, inner sanct, an inner, no, a sanctum, a kodesh, where you have the incense altars, and then the kodesh or kodeshim, the the sent uh, the, the highest level of of holiness where the ark was, where the divine presence was. Okay, so those would be temples, and we're going to look at one a little bit later on, uh, the, the one in Arad, which you can visit. I've been there. You, some of you heard me talk about it a lot in the negative. Uh, but they're also what they're called shrines, which are less formal places where people could come. Uh, I don't know that nobody, I don't know that they have actually found altars, but they presumably were some sort of an altar there. Uh, these were, they were, some of them, uh, they would have a, um, a matseva by a, by a tree, right? And there may have been an altar, but it was, it's no longer in existence. Um, but they would, they would worship the God there, where they would worship Hashem there. Okay. And that's what the Bible, what the Deuteronomic tradition is just exploded with. They get rid of those things. And, and by the way, keep in mind something. Kashrut that we, the, the, the dietary laws regarding consumption of meat, the way we manage that is defined by the book of Deuteronomy. Because Deuteronomy says, you may slaughter an animal at home. You got to pour the blood out. And of course, the animals are listed. What we know is, you know, the kosher animals. You've got to spill the blood out into the ground and you can eat it. But you cannot make that into a sacrifice to God. That's Deuteronomy. Sacrifices to God may only be offered in the place where God causes his name to dwell, which would have been the temple in Jerusalem or prior to that, the Mishkan, so to speak. But Deuteronomy was there was a temple. Okay. 
So only in that site can you offer sacrifices. And the whole point was get rid of the local temples because they're hotbeds of idolatry. They were commingled. They were places where idolatrous practices commingled with the worship of Hashem and possibly Hashem's, and frequently, Hashem's consort, God's wife. When you had, for example, the sacred tree and a, and a standing stone, the standing stone was Hashem and the sacred tree would be Asherah. Or you'd have a pole, you know, a wooden pole. It's the Asherah after a, uh, a very rigorous diet. She lost a lot of weight, right? She became from the pole. She was, you know, thin as a, a pole. Yeah, okay. But the whole point was they couldn't plant trees everywhere. And, and besides, I think I mentioned you can make the pole quicker than it takes to have a tree grow. Anyhow, so you see the multiple deities. We'll talk more about that the next time. But these, are, let me just read you the names of the places because some of the, a lot of them. So you've got, um, one second. Yeah. Dan up in the north. That's where Jeroboam had his temple, but it was also prior to that a, a shrine. Megiddo, what's called the bull site. I'm going south here. So I just, I'll, I'll just, I'll, you see the map. Okay. Megiddo, the bull site, Dotan, Tirza, Shrem, Geba, Jerusalem, Kirbet uh, Kayafa, that's the, the Yarad Temple, Lachish, no, the Yarad Temple, I'm sorry, the Yarad Temple is here. Kirbet Kayafa is something else. Wait a minute. Right, yes. That's the, right, that's the fortress. That, the, the Kirbet Kayafa is actually a mini temple. Physically, I mean, it's built with a small structure that's a temple. Um, Lachish, major population center in the south, Arad, and 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 uh, Be'er Sheva. Okay, and in addition, you have this place out, far flung place, uh, called just a second. Where are you? Here, called Ajrud. <clears throat> That's Arabic. It means something like the, the mountain of the, uh, of the wells, because there was a well nearby. So here you can see, you can see the boundary with Egypt. Yes. <clears throat> so the circle is where that was. And that was a shrine and it wasn't a, a mini temple. Okay. And that also, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. All right. So these are places that were found. And there are undoubtedly all other places that have not yet been dug up. Okay. So it gives you an extent of the, uh, literally, of the geographic spread of these things. Because <clears throat> remember, this is, the southern kingdom is here. The northern kingdom is here. So you're talking northern kingdom, including, you know, where's Beit Dale? Oh, right. You know what? They, yeah, Beit Dale's not on here, but it was a worship center. Okay. That's not on here. I guess they didn't find it. There's no digging for that over here. I don't know. I guess that's what that means. <clears throat> but you can see it, it was from the north to the south. And this was embedded in, in, Yisra, in Yehuda and Yisrael in, in both areas. So we're talking, this was not, you know, a few, a few instances. <clears throat> okay, uh, Tybal. So 
you said Jerusalem when you're going through the map. Jerusalem they found? Yeah, well, Jerusalem, well, you remember we talked about this. Hezekiah took an idol out of the temple. Oh, and- right, right, right. The Hezekiah, why I chased the Hezekiah and the Josiah. But it's interesting that out of all of those, Jerusalem is the only one that really resonates in a certain way. Like the other three sacred cities weren't on there. Well, uh, Shomron is mentioned uh, in the Kuntelet Ajrut, okay, they, in Samaria. They uh, This is where they've dug and found things. Bethel is not on this map. I don't know that they've actually dug there. Okay, this is, is this when this was printed, it was uh, at that point, those were the areas that had been actually uh, um, archaeologically dug. Yeah, Bethel was a major center in the in the south for that's where the other golden calf was. And it previously, as we see, housed pagan like activity with the with the Yamatseva. Okay, so yes. And as I say, Kuntelet Ajrud uh, uh Kuntelet Ajrud mentions ha ha Yudhevavhe of Shomron. So there was a worship center of Hashem there. Okay, and that would be a Bama. I don't know what it's like. I don't know if they found anything over there. Okay, and so, um, but yeah, Beersheba is mentioned in the Bible, and it's also, it's one of the places that Josiah uh, closed down. Arad, uh, I don't know if it's mentioned specifically, but it, as I say, the Arad temple in the in the fortress there is substantial. It, it is a real, serious mini temple over there okay and each one of these things they they found different pieces uh, of idolatry so that's that's why they're on the map all right okay so now we're going to talk next time we're going to see other expressions of this above and beyond what we've seen already in other books of the bible just to verify the extent of this uh but the point is of course that the the um, it, it is clearly a lar a major factor in the evolution of of monotheism. Okay, and you can see almost how the the language in different books of the Torah and books of the Bible are is going to shift on these things. But you'll look when they're going to read in the book of Joshua. Surprisingly, this is a book that was written under the influence of the Deuteronomic tradition. Remember, Josiah, Joshua, I mean, Yoshua takes over from Moshe, right? And it's a continuation. Some people look upon the 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 uh, book of, of Joshua as actually the second part of Deuteronomy, because that that is that what's missing in the Torah is the actual entrance into the land, and Joshua would fill that gap. So I'm not going to get into that discussion. It's clearly reflective of of Deuteronomic traditions. But there's some strange stuff going on there too, as we will see. All right. So see you all next week. Um, Keep the faith. Do not become idolaters. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. 
If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.